if you have a Bible, you can open up to Second uh, <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 3. Seven years. Thessalonians, uh, remember this is kind of a newer church. We might say they're a little bit wobbly and they uh, maybe haven't quite been uh, super established yet, haven't been around for a long time, uh, filled with uh, probably uh, new believers. Uh, and immediately they've come under uh, persecution uh, just for their existence. And so Paul, uh, in the second letter to them, is writing to them, uh, as you probably know, just uh, about end times and about hanging in there in the midst of difficulty and persecution and encouraging them um, to stand firm uh, where they're at and just kind of bringing some theological correction to them with their uh, end times uh, theology. And so kind of a lot, a lot going on uh, in this letter. And so as we get chapter 3, Starting in verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God um, to the steadfastness of Christ. And so we'll look at these first Five verses, and so as he starts off this chapter, finally, in other words, like he's kind of coming to a conclusion here, um, and he asks the brothers to pray for them. Now, remember, he's he's been writing to the church about their end time theology, about suffering, and he asks for prayer. So, in light of end times theology, in light of suffering, what do you suppose that Paul would ask them to pray for? He asked them to pray uh, for a couple of different things. One, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you. Remember, when, when the word of the Lord came to the Thessalonians, remember what happened, right? Paul came and, and his buddies, they came and they proclaimed the gospel and people came to faith. They immediately became persecuted and Paul, for fear of his life, had to escape in the middle of the night to go to the next town. Remember that? And he went to the next town, and people were so mad at Paul from Thessalonica that they followed him to the next town. And he had to go to the next town, like he was on the run. And, and the thing that Paul, as he's wrapping up this second letter, one of the things he asked him to pray for is that the same thing that happened in Thessalonica, pray that that happens everywhere else that we go, the next place and the next place and the next place. Given that we know what happened, uh, I find that just a little bit odd that Paul wouldn't pray that maybe it would go a, at least a little bit differently. Like maybe the faith part, pray that that would happen. The persecution part, pray that that doesn't happen. No, he just says, pray that what happened there happens uh, to the next place and the next place and the next place. And it, and it reminds me of what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, in verses 16 to 18. Paul says this, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make use of my full right in the gospel. This is a cool statement by Paul. So the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is that Paul is writing to the church, uh, basically making this argument that he has the ability, or anybody who, who makes their living uh, from the gospel has the ability um, to call upon the churches to whom they preach to support them in their preaching of the gospel. And Paul is basically saying in this aspect, like, woe to me, like, I have to do this. It doesn't matter if I get paid to do it. It doesn't matter if it supports me. I can't not preach the gospel. And he comes to the conclusion with the Corinthians that, that I'm not going to take advantage of the right that is due to me 
because I don't want there to be anything that would hinder or impede the gospel or for anybody to think that, that I'm engaging in gospel work for nefarious purposes, right? Gain or anything like that. He's like, I have to do this. I can't not do this. And, and this is what, what we see as, as really the call to be a pastor is a call that like, I can't not do this. And Paul can't not preach the gospel. Uh, Paul, in, in other places, writes to the Corinthians about how um, just all the difficulties that he has to go through as a minister of the gospel. Now, we know about Paul that he was somebody in the world before he came to know Christ. He had a standing. right? He had an impressive resume. Um, he, he was educated. He was respected. He was revered. Um, he even feared right, as, as a persecutor of the church. And then he came to faith in Christ, and he became persecuted. The persecutor became persecuted for the cause of Christ. And he uh, spent many nights in jail. Um, he talks about that, that he, he was beaten, shipwrecked, days without food, all because of this necessity that was laid upon him to go from place to place and proclaim the truth of the gospel. Woe to me, he says, if I do not preach. That's the kind of guy that can ask for prayer from a group, group of suffering Christians who are still trying to figure out their theology and say, pray that what happened to you happens to the next place that we go, and the place after that, and the place after that. And really, at the heart of Paul's prayer is that he's praying that people would come to faith in Christ. And, and if that means that that brings persecution, so be it, because Christ is better right, than, than persecution. He can't not do this. So he says, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So ultimately his prayer is that, that faith would be awakened as he goes from place to place. And we know Paul's history enough to know that as he went from place to place, uh, people came to know Christ everywhere he went. Right, And Paul's life was in service to that. The second thing that he asked for prayer for is that, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, Paul's a better man than I am. My, my prayer would be that God would smite the wicked and evil men, that he might wipe them off the face of the earth, uh, or that he might you know, hamper them in some way. Uh, but Paul just prays that, that they would be delivered from these wicked and evil men, kind of knowing that when he goes from place to place that he's going to encounter uh, wicked and evil men. Because at the end of the day, who is it that needs to come to faith in Christ? Wicked and evil people. Right? The Bible tells us that we were all wicked and evil people before we came to know Christ. And so if Paul were to pray, like I would pray, that God would just wipe them out like nobody would be left standing right, to evangelize. And so Paul knows this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a big statement from Paul. He goes on to say that if I'm to live in the flesh, that it means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here again, knowing what we know of Paul, knowing the difficulty of his life as a Christian minister, when he says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, he's saying, for me to be with Christ means no more beatings, no more jail cells, no more days on end without food, no more shipwrecks, no more having to run in the middle of the night from town to town for fear of my life. 
To die means I'll be with Christ and those things are no more. Yet, Paul comes to the conclusion, what shall I choose? He says, I'm hard-pressed, but my, my desire on one hand is to depart and be with Christ, but to remain in the flesh, he says, is more necessary for the wicked and evil people so that they would come to know Christ through the fruit of my labor. You ever, you ever think about that statement in this context? I would rather be with Christ so that this difficulty and this suffering would come to an end, but I'm here and God has a purpose for me and that purpose is to remain and that purpose is to be a proclaimer of the truth of the gospel everywhere it goes no matter the difficulty that it brings. So that Christ would be glorified in his suffering, in his persecution because the result of it is that people come to know Christ through that effort. And then back to Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he just makes a simple statement at the end of asking for the prayer for the two things, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for, he says, not all have faith. This is a short statement, but it's the impetus for Paul doing what he does, because all do not have faith. John Piper is famous for saying that worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. He says that mission exists because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or a tribal or a national or an ethnic privilege. It's for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth included. So I think John Piper would agree with Paul in saying, for not all have faith, therefore we have work to do. We have a mission in which we're called to engage. Because people everywhere don't worship God, then we have a mission that's laid before the church and the Christian. There, there's going to come a day, I don't know if you ever thought about this, there's going to come a day, right? Philippians tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It makes no distinction between those who willingly bow and who unwillingly bow. It just says that everyone is going to know and there's going to be no question about who is God, right? And it's, and it's Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess that. Every knee will bow to that. When that day comes, the mission is over. There's no more mission. It's done because everybody knows. But right now, not everybody knows. Not everybody worships. Not, ever, not everybody bows the knee to Christ. In other words, not all have faith. Therefore, since the worship of God doesn't exist in every corner of the world, we go and, and we put up with persecution and we suffer uh, accordingly. And now some, some of us are called to hop on a plane. You know, Glenn hops on planes a lot and then flies to other parts of the world and, and trains pastors how, how to teach people the gospel. Right? That's engaging in mission. But not everybody has to hop on a plane. I would think everybody's called to go across the street. Not everybody's called to go across an ocean. And if you go across an ocean, good for you. But but everybody, I think, is called to go at the very least across the street. Right? Your circle of influence, you know, friends, family, neighbors, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you share the gospel with your family or uh, with your neighbor, might that cause some persecution for you? Might that cause some suffering? Sure. Right? You can hop on a plane and go across the world and, and you can be considered a weirdo and who cares? They're on the other side of the world. You're going to go home one day 
your neighbor, you see them tomorrow across the fence, and if they think you're a weirdo, like you get, there's a little skin in the game there, right? But we go and we do these things because maybe my neighbors don't have faith. Maybe people in my family don't have faith. Maybe my coworkers don't have faith. Right? And, and some, sometimes we exhaust our efforts praying for these people that are in our circles of influence while not engaging them in matters of the gospel. Think about that. How, how many people do you pray for? Right? If you're like me, you probably have a list, right? People that you pray for. Pray that they would come to know Christ. When was the last time that you talked to them about Christ? Right? And I say that to you, like that's convicting to me too, because I have people in my life that I pray for that I haven't talked to about Christ in a long time. Right? I'm, I'm not going across the street as I'm up here telling you, like we all need to go across the street, right? Not all have faith. Worship, the worship of God doesn't exist everywhere. Therefore, we go and we engage the world around us in matters of faith. Now, if you can hop on a plane in addition to that, good, good for you because there are people in other parts of the world that need people like us to hop on planes and go engage them in matters of faith also. But, but it's not a one or the other scenario. It might be a both and kind of a scenario for many of us. And so Paul asks for prayer, ultimately that the word of the Lord would, would awaken faith in their travels. And not, not that the wicked and evil people would be smited and wiped off of the earth, but that they would respond to the message of the gospel with faith, that they would come to know Christ. It's the beauty of the church, is that, that we sit in a room like this and realizing that, that we might not come together, our paths in life might not cross outside of a context like this. Right? The church is filled with people from different backgrounds, with, with different, maybe even ideologies, slightly different worldviews. Right? You can join, you know, some, I call them the animal clubs, like the Elks Club or the Moose Club or those kinds of things, uh, and, and it's generally people with affinity. Right? They have kind of similar interests in life, and, and it makes sense for groups to come together like that, or car club, you know, come around together around a common interest. The church, the church is full of people that don't necessarily have common, we have common faith, but we don't necessarily have common interests. And the church, if we're doing it right, is filled with people from even different, you know, socioeconomic statuses that, that come together that we might not naturally be friends outside of this kind of context. What a beautiful thing that is. The commonality that we share is that, that we were the wicked and evil people that came to faith. And so now we have kind of this tie that binds us together. And that's why Paul can ask for prayer for more of that to happen as he goes from place to place. Then in verse 3, he makes this short statement, sentence. He says, but the Lord is faithful. Remember, his context here is suffering and persecution not smiting the wicked and evil people, delivering them through it, because the Lord is faithful. It's a single sentence that reminds a suffering church that God is faithful despite the difficult circumstances in which they find themselves. It's not usually when things are going well that we turn to God and that we remember God's faithfulness, at least for most of us probably. When things are going my way, I'm not always quick to thank God that, that things in my estimation are going good. It, it's when things take a turn and, and don't go my way. Those are the times that I look to God most often and pray, 
kind of those Jesus take the wheel moments. Like, what's I wasn't expecting this thing in life. Like, what, what in the world? Right. Those those are the times that, that we even tend to remember. And God, in His faithfulness to us, reminds us in our difficulty that He is faithful. Right. God uses the things that even we would deem to be bad or wrong or not according to our plan in order to remind us that, that He does exist and that He is for us. Right. Thank God that He does that. But Paul is reminding this persecuted church that God is faithful. Paul reminds us that in spite of how things seem to be going, that God is faithful. And for those that who understand the sovereignty of God in all things, that nothing gets past him and everything in the life of the Christian is meant for our good. Romans 8.28 You love God and you're called according to his purposes. Everything is for your good. It doesn't say everything is good, but everything is for your good. So even the things that you don't think are good, if you belong to God, they are for your good. That's such a comfort to know that. And, and Paul is reminding this persecuted church that it's God who is faithful. He reminds them, uh, going on in verse 3, that it's God who will establish them and guard them against the evil one. We, we throw out statements like this, like, you know, God is for you. God works all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. It's God who will establish, God who will guard Right? We, we throw out these things oftentimes just as platitudes in, in difficult circumstances. Right? We've all done that. Right? Someone has, we don't know what to say, and so we might say, well, God, is, God loves you. Or we don't know what to say, and we might say, well, you know, God closes a door, he opens a window. Right? Th- things like that. As pl- Paul is not throwing out platitudes to this persecuted church. Paul is giving them some theological realities that ought to uh, when understood, inform and bolster and deepen and strengthen their faith. So when Paul says that it's God who will establish and God who will guard against the evil one, he's not just throwing out a platitude to try to make them feel better. He's giving them this theological reality as a reminder to them uh, to help their faith. It's God who establishes. According to John chapter 6, we're told that it's the work of God that we believe. There's this moment in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds a bunch of people with a little bit of food, one of the miracles that he performs. And on the heels of this miracle, the crowd starts to follow Jesus, and they ask him right after this miracle, they say, show us a sign. Like he just gave them a sign, right? They said, show us a sign. Right? Give, give us a miracle, give us something. And Jesus basically says to them, you want a miracle? The fact that you believe, like that's, that's the real miracle, that's the work of God, that you have faith. Right? It's a work of God. Hebrews 12 tells us that it's Jesus who is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith or the finisher of our faith. Right? So the faith that you have, like, you don't even get to take credit for that. that. That's a work of God in your life that you have faith. Paul writes to the Corinthians that it's the God of this age, our enemy, the devil, who blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So if the blinders come off, it's not your work. It's not something you get to pat yourself on the back for. The Bible clearly tells us that it's God's work, that he's removed those blinders from you and given you the ability to believe. So it's God who establishes the Christian. And again, this is an important theological truth because if it's me who establishes me, then who, who's it up to to keep it going? Me. right? If you establish you, it's up to you to keep it going. But if it's God who establishes it, if it's God who, who creates faith in us, if it's God's work that we believe, whose responsibility is that to keep it going? His. 
not mine. Right? Important theological truth here. So not only is it God who establishes, God grants us faith. The book of Romans teaches us that God justifies us, that he has and is sanctifying us, and that ultimately he will glorify the Christian. All of that God's work. Right? We, we get to be participants in it, but, but it's all God's work and his doing. And not only that, not only does God, God doesn't establish you and say, well, see you when you get to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It says that God guards us, Paul reminds us. So he doesn't establish you and say, see you later. He guards you through all of this. Romans 8.31, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We probably all have read that or, or it sounds familiar to us. And, and again, this is not just a platitude. This is a theological reality that, that if we're on God's side, right, the Bible tells us how things are going to shake out. We, we know who wins in the end. Right? And if we're on God's side, even though it might not always feel like it, nothing can come against those who belong to God. He goes on to say that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And the answer to that question is nothing. None of those things will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And did you pick up the part where not only is Christ sitting, the Son sitting at the right hand of the Father, but it says that indeed He's interceding for us. What a comfort that is to know that Jesus Christ is interceding on behalf of you and me and all of those that belong to Him. So it's Him who establishes, Him who guards us as He's interceding for us right now, this very moment. Again, not a platitude, a theological reality that ought to bolster our faith. Paul goes on to say in verse 4 of Second Thessalonians 3 that we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And so Paul and his buddies had spent some time as they would do when they go place to place, spend time in those places teaching people. Right? The Great Commission tells us to, to go into the world and make disciples and to teach everybody to obey the things that Christ has commanded. And so this is what Paul and his buddies did. They went from place to place. They made disciples, planted churches, and they taught people to obey the things that Christ commanded. And Paul has a confidence as it relates to the church at Thessalonica. And his confidence is not necessarily in them, although I'm sure he does have some level of confidence in these people, but ultimately his confidence is in the Lord about them. In other words, his confidence is that God is going to continue the work that he started. And he's not going to stop that work. His confidence is not in the people, but in God who establishes his people. Paul's confidence is not in the work of the people, but in the work of God. And it's only God who can sustain his people in the midst of suffering and persecution. I don't like to suffer. I'm guessing you don't either. I don't like to be persecuted. You probably don't either. 
And for me, like the slightest, like if I'm going to do something that I know is going to result in suffering, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to find a better way to do that thing, whatever it is, right? Paul's confidence is not in the people, but in God who sustains them in their suffering. And, and what is it that he's confident in? He's confident that they'll do the things that were commanded to them to do. In other words, that they would hold fast to Christ. They would stand firm in the previous verses that we read. That God's work in them would continue. The Bible tells us that, that think about this, like when, when did God establish his people? You ever think about this? The Bible tells us that God established his people before the foundation of the earth. You ever think about that? Like before the earth was created, God established his people. Right? We're told that, that beforehand, God had prepared good works that we would walk in them. Beforehand, before the foundations of the earth. And not only did he establish his people, but he established the work of his people before he created the heavens and the earth. Ephesians chapter 2. And so, God isn't just kind of willy-nilly as we go. Oh, we're going to do this, and no, we're going to do that. Oh, we're going to start a church over here, and we're, these people are going to, going to suffer, and these people are, are going to have it a little easier. God's not making things up as he goes. There's, there's a plan that's unfolding. Again, not, not, that's more than a platitude. That's a theological reality that we would know, especially as, as we see the trajectory of our world. Like We're, we're not on a good trajectory. Right? And, and the trajectory seems to be sharper and sharper in the wrong direction more and more as time goes on. But, but we don't stand up here and decry that the sky is falling, even though there are days that it may feel like that. And we don't cry that the sky is falling because we trust that God has a plan that's unfolding. And he tells us, like, the closer that the end gets, the, the worse things are going to seem. We're told that in the Bible. Right? We're told in the end that people are going to be selfish and they're going to be jerks and they're all these things. Right? And you know, why are we surprised that, that what we're told is actually unfolding before our eyes? God has a plan that's unfolding and all of it is working towards the culmination of the time when every tongue confesses and every knee bows that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything's working towards that end. Even though it probably feels like if you just watch the news for five minutes, it feels like we're working in the opposite direction. We're not. Everything is working towards the end for which God has planned it. That's why Paul can say that his confidence is not in the people. His confidence is in the God who established the people and the God who is guarding their people, that he's going also to allow them to be obedient to him as time goes on and in the midst of extreme difficulty. And in verse 5, it says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Why is it that Paul can ask that they pray not for easier circumstances, but that the word of God would continue to spread in the midst of difficulty? It seems like it would not be unreasonable for Paul in the middle of all this to say, like, God, could you just make this a little bit easier? But, but he doesn't. It's because of his belief in a God who's faithful, his belief in the God who establishes, his belief in the God who guards, his belief 
in the God in whom we all should place our confidence, his belief in the God who orders even our obedience. So given these truths, it's fitting that Paul offers this last exhortation in verse 5, that, that their hearts would be directed to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Again, uh, this is God's work in his people, not our work in and of ourselves. If I'm Paul, I, would, I might take this opportunity to tell them, in, in an effort to try to comfort them, you, you think you have it bad? Let me tell you about the last month for me. That's what I would do if I were Paul. I'd tell you about the time that I was unfairly sent to jail. Or how about the time that, that they wouldn't feed me? How about the time that they, they gave me 39 lashes, like 40 lashes minus one, like beating me with an inch of my life? Let me tell you about that. Has that happened to you? Well, feel good about yourself that you haven't had that. that I might say things like that. But Paul doesn't. He directs their hearts to the love of God, this, this love that we can't be separated from. Right, the love of God, it's, it's like a warm blanket that we wrap up in, and it's just its every comfort that we can ever imagine. The Romans passage I read earlier goes on in Romans 8.37 to say that in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Warm blanket. Nothing. I mean, he, he gives us a pretty exhaustive list here. Nothing, we're told, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the gospel truths that we believe with every ounce of conviction that we have is that, that God's love is not dependent upon our love back to Him. God loves us, us wicked and evil people, remember. God loves us in our wickedness and in our evil state not because of anything worthy of us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but simply because he chooses to love a sinner like me and sinners like you. That's the love of God. And there's nothing in all of creation, the Bible tells us, that can change that or separate us from God's love. Even on the days when, when I might not feel God's love, that doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. Even in the days when I might be angry at God because of the way that something has gone in life, it doesn't change His love for me. Even in seasons of unfaithfulness, it doesn't change God's love towards us. And so Paul is encouraging them to turn their hearts towards this love of God, towards the love that you can't mess up. Right, the, the Bible tells us, like, if we could mess it up, we would. Right? You, you hear me say a lot, I use this phrase that, Christ, that God has done for us in Christ, things that we could and would never do for ourselves. Namely, that he's, he's loved us when we're not fully capable of loving him back the way that he deserves to be loved. In our sinfulness, in our sinful state, while we were enemies, the Bible tells us, Christ died for us because he loved us so much. He did for us what we could and would never do for ourselves. 
remember that as, as your heart is turned towards the love of God, that He has done things for you that you really couldn't do for yourself, but even if you could, you you would mess it up, right? That's that's the truth. He's done for you things that you could never do for yourself. Namely, He's redeemed you from your wickedness. He's redeemed you from your sin and is redeeming you from your sin. Right? When we come to faith in Christ, we don't just automatically, you know, boom, become perfect people. Right? We struggle in this life until the day that we're face to face with Him. We struggle. We're tempted with things that we shouldn't be tempted with. We do things we ought not to do. We think things that we ought not to think. God loves us and all of that. God, God doesn't ever look at us like God knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. The Bible says he orders and controls everything. I think it was Abraham Kuyper who said there's no rogue molecules even in the entirety of the universe. Right? God orders it all. He knows your thoughts. He knows the things about you that nobody else knows. And he loves you. And, and you're not going to bungle that. You're not going to mess it up. You're not going to mess up God's love for you if you belong to him. And so that's why Paul, again, not as a platitude, but as a theological reality, says, turn your hearts towards the love of Christ. This persecuted church, right? They're having a rough go, right? Turn your hearts to the love of Christ. And don't think about the nature of your circumstances for what they are. Think about the nature of your circumstances in light of God's love for you. Charles Spurgeon says that, that if there were any other circumstance better for you than the one that you're currently in now, divine love would put you there. Think about that. So on your worst days, this suffering church, whatever comes your way, filter it all through the love of God. Turn your heart towards the love of God. And then Paul also encourages them to turn their hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, and I'm sure of this, not, not that I'm fairly certain of this, not I think this is going to happen, not that I'm pretty sure. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The steadfastness of Christ. Jesus Christ, who, as he was going to the cross, you, you might remember this scene in the garden. He's praying to his Father. Do you remember, remember what he says? Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, tell me. Like this is, I'm about to do this really hard thing, <laughs> difficult, painful thing. If there's any other way, now might be the time to let me know if there's another plan. But, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The steadfastness of Christ, his obedience to the Father in excruciating difficulty, doing for you what you could and would never do for yourself. The steadfastness of Christ. Christ doing for you the thing that you couldn't do or wouldn't do. And that's why Paul can appeal to that steadfastness and why he can write to the Philippians that he's sure that the work that Christ has began in you, that he will complete it because he doesn't quit. Because he's steadfast, because he's faithful. And so again, as he's talking to this persecuted church, I'm sure they're questioning, where's God in our persecution? 
have we have we made a huge mistake because this isn't going well? Right, and Paul is reminding them of the love of God that that is unbreakable and unchangeable, can't be messed up, and the steadfastness of Christ, which will be faithful to carry you on until the end. So may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Powerful truths that, that I hope that we can consider today, maybe in ways that we haven't considered before. Right, That we would consider things that we might consider to be platitudes as theological realities that speak to us, theological realities that inform our faith. Theological realities that we can turn to in the most difficult times of our life or the hard days and we can remember these theological realities and read them as if they are true, because they are. They're 100% fully true. And Paul is an example of a person who just went from one difficulty to the next because of his belief in these things being true, uh, as he encourages others to believe those things. And so if I could give you any kind of takeaway today is just remember, remember the gospel that you believed. Right? We, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. Sometimes as pastors, we feel a little bit like one-trick ponies that we're up here every week saying the same thing over and over and over again. But we gladly do it because we need to hear these truths over and over and over and over and over again all of the time. And, and Sunday to Sunday might not be enough. You, you might go home this afternoon and you might need to hear this truth again today. You might need to hear this truth again tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off or when you go to work and it's just a typical Monday and things are a mess. You might need to hear these truths over and over and over again. That's why we preach the gospel week after week after week so that we can all be reminded of these truths, so that we can all be encouraged at the end of the day to turn our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful that we can turn our hearts towards your love. We're thankful that you are steadfast. We're thankful the Bible tells us that you are unchanging, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, we're thankful that uh, even in our uh, sinfulness that you love us, that you care for us. Thankful that you establish us. Thankful that you guard us. Thankful that we can turn to you in the midst of our difficulties. But more than that, God, we're thankful that, that you love us, that you love those who have come to faith in you with a love that, that cannot be broken. And so I pray that you would help us to remember that uh, day in and day out, that we would be frequently reminded of your love for us uh, and that you would help us as we desire to live lives that are obedient to you, that you would help us as we desire um, to be proclaimers of gospel truth in, in our little corner of the world, in our workplaces and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and anywhere and everywhere that we go. We can't do it without your help and we ask for it today and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.